This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Heidi Dalton, who is the Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at the Phoenix Children's Hospital and Professor of Child Health at the University of Arizona. Dr. Dalton is an expert in ECMO. Uh, she is a member of the steering committee of the Extracorporal Life Support Organization. And on that steering committee, she's actually the conference organizer and planner. And with that experience, she's traveled around the world advising on ECMO programs. And today, we want to tap that experience and ask uh, Dr. Dalton about the state of ECMO as it exists uh, in the world today in pediatrics. But before we begin, I wonder if I could ask our colleagues around the world if you could first stop and tell us, do you have an ECMO program? And if so, could you tell us uh, what city and country you're located in? And if you have an ECMO program, uh, is it a neonatal uh, program only, or is it a neonatal and pediatric program? And finally, uh, if you have an ECMO program, approximately how many patients per year uh, do you cannulate uh, for ECMO support? We're back now. Uh, Heidi, uh, welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I wonder if we could begin um, by asking if you could give us an overview of the state of ECMO as it exists around the world today. Um, how, what do we know about the programs? How many are there? And importantly, what do we know about outcomes in both neonates and in children? So this is sort of a very exciting time to be part of the whole ECMO world uh, because it seems like after sort of years of stagnation, uh, it really seems like ECMO is on the rise. But certainly, uh, ECMO is now becoming completely global. Uh, there are new programs being set up in almost every corner of the globe. This map just shows the number of ECMO centers and where they are located. There are now over 230 centers that report data to the ELSO registry, uh, both in the United States, but uh, as far away now as Africa, Australia, Asia, South America, uh, all over. And uh, that uh, explosion has come about predominantly just in the last, I'd say, three or four years. And uh, what the ELSO organization has been doing to sort of help that effort is to create uh, different chapters. So we now have a Euro-ELSO chapter that uh, includes European centers. Um, we just formed our first uh, Asia-Pacific uh, ELSO chapter. And there is now a Latin American ELSO chapter that has also been formed, as well as an uh, Asia-Indian chapter and a variety of other uh, places in the world that are now creating uh, their own sort of subsections of ELSO as a way to capture a lot of data. Having said that, though, there are many, many, many programs that are cropping up for which we have very little knowledge and very little uh, information about the types of patients they're seeing, the outcomes they're seeing, the type of equipment they use, and that sort of thing. As we continue to sort of try and capture as many patient uh, information statistics as we can, I think we'll be able to get a clearer picture of what's going on uh, around the world. But um, as of today, ECMO is, uh, is booming. 
Uh, we are developing steering committees for all of these new chapters uh, as they sort of uh, move forward. Probably the Euro-ELSO chapter has moved forward the fastest. We've now had um, several international meetings, the first one in Rome, the second one recently uh, in Stockholm. Uh, and we've celebrated that with, uh, you know, banners and, and cheers and uh, cakes and fireworks and all those things to sort of kick off that organization. Uh, and both of those meetings, both the one in Rome and the one in Stockholm, um, had about 800 uh, attendees from all over uh, Europe and internationally that came to share uh, their experiences. The first Asia-Pacific conference, as I mentioned, was held in Beijing. We also had about 800 attendees there, actually much larger than we had initially uh, expected. And it was a very good time of sharing both science uh, and a lot of information. And while that, I think, is extremely exciting, uh, it leaves us open to a lot of uh, problems with how things are actually done because there isn't a good rigorous uh, standardization of how ECMO is done in terms of how it's set up in types of the patient selection criteria that we use, the weaning criteria that we use, uh, or anything else. And certainly one of the goals of having these chapters is not only to report data to ELSO, but to help us sort of develop guidelines and suggestions for how we're going to perform this, since a lot of centers are really just at the very beginnings of getting their experience uh, above ground and started. Um, the other thing that has been very successful is the use of simulation courses to help centers actually not only learn how to do ECMO from the very basic level. The other thing is that uh, ECMO is now, you know, certainly not confined to the ELSO organization. Uh, a variety of other organizations are um, interested in having more training sessions uh, involved with their conferences. So, for example, the uh, World Pediatric Congress, which is going to go on in Istanbul next May, uh, we are doing a two-day ECMO course prior to that conference uh, aimed mainly at novice folks who are just starting out to explain a little bit more about uh, ECMO. And the uh, 2014 Euro-ELSA meeting will be held in May, a little bit later on that month, and that will be uh, followed up with the uh, 25th anniversary meeting of the ELSA organization in Ann Arbor next September. And then uh, the Latin American uh, conference will actually get started uh, in December of next year, probably in Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil, to try and uh, keep sort of the banner of ECMO waving, as well as make sure that folks, as we're setting up things, uh, sort of are on the same page about the types of patients we think we're all treating, the results that we're getting, and truthfully, um, what kind of equipment we're using. There's certainly been a very large uh, influx of equipment uh, that is now available for ECMO use, and I think that's changed somewhat uh, the face of ECMO a little bit and made it more readily available to a wider variety of patients than ever before. If you look at the uh, ELSO registry, um, to date, it uh, now has data on about 60,000 uh, patients nationally and internationally. Uh, and the overall survival uh, for those patients is about 60% uh, to discharge. Uh, and the way that registry works is uh, there are neonates that are less than 30 days of age and you pick a primary indication for ECMO use, whether it's for respiratory failure, cardiac failure, or ECMO use is in resuscitation from cardiac arrest. We call that eCPR. 
and uh, we have a neonatal section, we have a pediatric section, which is for patients 31 days of age to 18 years, and an adult uh, section as well uh, for patients over the age of 18. And we report data uh, based on those particular categories and the indication for ECMO, whether it's respiratory cardiac or eCPR. And then for centers that are involved in uh, ELSO and are members of ELSO, they get periodic reports not only on their own center's patient population and their performance, but how they compare to other centers nationally and internationally, as well as um, complications that develop uh, the relationship of complications to outcome uh, and that type of data. Now certainly we know that over time, even though ECMO really got started with the neonates with respiratory failure, we know that as other therapies have come along, the use of ECMO in that patient population has fallen off. And there's now probably about six to 800 neonates who still receive ECMO for respiratory failure. Uh, but the biggest groups that are on the rise are still the cardiac population uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it's uh, recovery from post-operative repair of congenital heart defects, or patients who are being supported as a bridge to transplant, or patients uh, who have cardiac arrest. Uh, in the pediatric realm, uh, respiratory failure patients are still relatively a, a, a small proportion of the ELSO registry. There's only about 300 respiratory failure patients per year. And then with the advent of uh, new equipment, new cannulas, new techniques, and uh, the H1 pandemic a few years ago, there's been a very rapid rise in the use of uh, ECMO in the uh, adult population. If you look at uh, neonates, for instance, um, certainly the uh, best outcome remains patients with meconium aspiration. However, those patients uh, now form a very small part of what is uh, what is treated. Certainly, uh, respiratory distress syndrome has pretty well disappeared with the advent of surfactant, but there are still patients with uh, diaphragmatic hernia that remains like the worst group still uh, to treat, and despite the fact that this has been done for many years, the survival in those patients is still only about 50%, so it's not like we've had a great deal of success, even with ECMO support. And then other groups, such as those with uh, sepsis, um, and uh, pulmonary hypertension of the newborn uh, remain sort of consistent uh, patient populations in the neonatal realm that are being placed on ECMO. We uh, know there are two major forms of how ECMO is provided. One is called venoarterial, where you drain blood out of the venous circulation and then reinfuse it directly into the arterial circulation uh, of the patient. And in a newborn with very small vessels, that's usually done through the neck. So we use the internal jugular vein for drainage and uh, we insert a cannula through the uh, carotid artery into the arch of the aorta for return of oxygenated blood from the circuit. And still about three quarters of uh, neonates receive venoarterial ECMO support uh, during their duration of their run. But with the advent of newer uh, venovenous cannulas, which allow you to have both drainage and reinfusion into the venous side of the circulation, about a quarter of the patients in the neonatal realm are being supported uh, with venovenous uh, support. So if we move to the pediatric realm, um, there's probably about 350 to 400 kids with pediatric respiratory failure that are reported to the uh, ELSO registry uh, each year. But we have patients with viral pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia, uh, sepsis, ARDS from a lot of other things. And overall, the survival of pediatric respiratory failure patients is about 
50 to 60 percent, which mirrors also the uh, adult experience uh, with, with extracorporeal life support. Because a lot of the pediatric patients are um, a little bit larger, uh, they are more amenable to uh, venovenous cannulation, especially with some of the newer equipment that has come along in the last few years. And if you look at the ELSO registry over the last year, it has actually moved to almost two-thirds of the patients are getting venovenous support in some fashion. And there has been a move towards uh, venovenous support and less requirement on venoarterial support uh, in the pediatric uh, population. Uh, certainly one of the things that remains uh, the Achilles heel with ECMO support is the complications that develop, and predominantly those uh, revolve around bleeding and thrombosis. And many of the septic patients that we put on already have DIC or thrombocytopenia. Uh, and other problems that make them at risk for bleeding. We also know that once you are exposed to an extracorporeal circuit, that that uh, triggers a uh, coagulation cascade in your body so that you actually become prothrombotic. And we are then forced to use an anticoagulant, which has uh, to date uh, been used as heparin uh, predominantly. And that uh, the need for heparin to prevent clotting of the circuit so that the circuit will actually run uh, also contributes to the fact that about 75% of the patients are uh, experiencing some type of bleeding uh, complication. And while we don't talk about thrombosis actually uh, quite that uh, significantly, um, we also see thrombosis in about uh, a third of the patients clinically and from autopsy specimens actually uh, it's been shown that about two-thirds of the patients may have thrombosis, relatively major thrombosis, such as pulmonary embolus or clots uh, in the intracardiac region that are unsuspected, actually, by clinicians at the bedside. So both of those things represent uh, major complications that, if we could get rid of those, uh, would make ECMO uh, amenable to even more patients than it is today. Probably the largest group uh, currently that is receiving ECMO are patients with uh, cardiac failure from a variety of reasons. And certainly uh, most of those patients are the ones that have uh, post-operative uh, cardiac output problems after repair of congenital heart defects. And uh, about 42% of those patients survive, but there is also uh, a growing amount of patients actually with myocarditis or cardiomyopathy who are placed on ECMO uh, and recover. And if they don't recover, now they can be transitioned to a longer-term ventricular assist device or a bridge to transplant. Um, and then uh, there is, as I mentioned, also a wider uh, use of ECMO for um, eCPR or resuscitation from refractory cardiac arrest. And if you look at the ELSO registry over time now, there are probably about uh, 3,000 patients, uh, if you add up the neonates, the pediatric, and the adult patients with eCPR uh, who have been treated. Uh, and that's an ever-increasing amount of patients each year. Um, sadly, however, even though more patients are being treated and we think we're better at it and we have emergency response teams which can cannulate and place patients on ECMO very quickly, the overall survival for those patients over the last five or ten years has really not changed. It's about 35 or 40 percent, which if you um, assume that if you didn't apply ECMO to those patients and they were not able to be resuscitated, they would all die, so maybe 40 percent survival isn't so bad, but certainly uh, that's a number that we would like to improve upon 
um, as we move forward. Well, um, Heidi, that's a, a wonderful overview. I wonder if I could turn to the world now and ask our colleagues around the world, could you identify what city and country you're in? And could you tell us, um, do you have a cardiac ECMO program? That is, does your ECMO program care for cardiac patients? Um, and if so, uh, do you have a single ventricle program? Uh, and do you have a program uh, available for so-called eCPR or uh, having ECMO available, as Dr. Dalton just described, as part of your resuscitation protocol? We're back now. Heidi, um, could you pick up the story from here? Um, what else do we need to know about the epidemiology of, of ECMO and um, where, where it's expanded to? We know that patients have more comorbidities all the way around. We have more patients with cancer. We have more patients with immunocompromised from other conditions. We have more patients with liver failure, renal failure, um, DIC, all of these things that in the past we would have shied away from. And if you look at uh, one of the more recent publications evaluating the ELSO registry, for instance, the number of patients with comorbidities has risen, risen steadily over the last few years uh, in terms of ECMO support. And while those patients do have um, less uh, Im impaired survival compared to patients without any comorbidities, their survival is actually not that bad. And I think there has been a uh, large increase in people sort of willing to push the envelope uh, and care for patients that, you know, 10 years ago we would have said no to. And we've been able to convince a lot of skeptics, I think, actually, of the advantages of using ECMO. For instance, um, one of the scariest things to intubate as a pediatric intensivist is the kid with a very bad anterior mediastinal mass, who you're afraid as soon as you take away their ability to breathe on their own, to intubate them, can suddenly collapse and die. So in many centers now, they will actually um, put cannulas in those kids and provide them with some oxygenation and ventilation support via an ECMO circuit while they do biopsies or whatever it is they need to do to figure out what those masses are. It's also being used for, uh, to facilitate airway surgery because if you don't have an endotracheal tube in the airway, it's much easier uh, to do operate in that uh, particular area. We also know that patients with trauma, this is another group we didn't treat in the past, right? They're all gonna bleed to death. Uh, we now know that a traumatic uh, use, uh, patients with traumatic injury have had a very good success uh, with ECMO, even relatively quickly after, oper after an operation or before they go to the operating room, actually, as a way to help stabilize them and so that they can go in and do operative repairs. There are even some interesting abstracts, I haven't seen many of these out in press yet, of patients with uh, traumatic brain injury and intracranial hemorrhage who are being placed on ECMO, often without the use of heparin for some period of hours, um, and who have done actually quite well and don't develop worsening intracranial uh, hemorrhage. So that our ability to support patients has really, I think, fostered the environment so that now it's not so much uh, what patients do we include, but what patients should we exclude? And the exclusion criteria are becoming less and less uh, clear. And in most centers, I think almost every case is sort of a case-by-case -case discussion. You know, if it's a cancer patient, you talk to your HEMOC team about what do you think the actual recovery for this patient would be if we can get him through this acute illness. Uh, for the trauma patient, okay, 
you know, um, if I go to the extent of placing this patient on ECMO, do you really think you can get control of uh, whatever, this bleeding in the OR, or will this facilitate you able to um, fix their fractures or whatever while I'm supporting their pulmonary contusion? Now, if we move from epidemiology for a few minutes to some of the reasons why ECMO is in sort of this changing mode, I think, you know, if you go back and compare it to the ECMO that we used to do, if you go back to Gibbons' first machines, for instance, and how cumbersome they were and how it filled up an entire room and took, you know, like five gallons of blood uh, to prime the circuit, to what we do now, I mean, it's amazing. For many, many years, the silicone membrane lung was the workhorse of ECMO, and it worked very well, but truthfully, it was quite difficult to prime. Uh, it had a lot of stagnant areas in it. It would develop clots. It's one of the reasons why we had to use uh, so much heparin to prevent the thing from clotting. And with the advent of hollow fiber oxygenators, uh, the silicone membrane lung, at least based on the last uh, equipment survey, which was done last year, has almost overnight disappeared from use uh, in the ECMO world. Hollow fiber oxygenators are very low resistance to blood flow, so you can prime them in a minute. It's much easier uh, to get uh, CO2 bubbles out of them, which is one of the problems with a silicone membrane lung. Uh, they have very good gas exchange uh, characteristics so that you can provide excellent CO2 removal and excellent oxygenation at relatively low flows uh, from the patient themselves. And they're quite durable. The new ones that have come on the, the market, the PMP or the polymethylpentene um, oxygenators can last weeks or even months without needing to be changed. And that has made ECMO uh, much more attractive uh, to a subset of um, adult clinicians or other clinicians who might have been skeptical about uh, this uh, type of procedure because it's now much easier to do and it's much easier to set up. The circuitry is much smaller than it used to be and that has opened up a whole new era to where now uh, not only are we able to implement ECMO from you know, cardiac arrest to being on a fully primed circuit ready to go within you know, 10 or 20 minutes, to the fact that because of the changes that have occurred with our technology, we feel like it's actually uh, safer and quite efficient. And so now we're moving from a mode where patients had to be completely paralyzed, sedated, to awake ECMO, and now awake and walking and talking ECMO, so that you don't uh, get into a lot of the complications that arise from long-term sedation use and from muscle uh, disuse so that you get less atrophy and you're able to keep the patient in a more healthy state while their organs are uh, recovering. I wonder now, uh, Dr. Dalton, could we talk about um, advances in ECMO technology? Um, you know, what are people using for oxygenators and what are people using for roller pump technology? Uh, but before we hear from Dr. Dalton, I wonder if I could ask our colleagues around the world what type of ECMO circuit you use. If you do have an ECMO program, could you identify your city and country, and could you tell us the specific type of oxygenator and pump that you use in your program? Uh, Dr. Dalton, where is the uh, status of um, ECMO technology? Well, I think this is one of the reasons why there's uh, been such a rise in the use of ECMO over the last few years. Um, you know, after years of sort of stagnant uh, equipment development, 
uh, we now have a variety of things on the market that weren't available a few years ago. And a lot of that uh, revolves around the oxygenator. I think I've already talked about that a little bit. But certainly the hollow fiber oxygenators um, are much more durable. Uh, they're much easier to use. They provide great gas exchange. Now, it's interesting as you travel around the world, there is a variety of types of hollow fiber oxygenators that are available. And it'll be interesting to see what types of hollow fiber oxygenators our colleagues around the world use. Here in the States, the only hollow fiber oxygenator uh, which has worked well uh, for uh, sort of long-term ECMO use is the Quadrox oxygenator, which is one of these PMP oxygenators. There are some older generation hollow fiber oxygenators which have uh, a difficulty with plasma leak. Uh, sometimes over the first few minutes, hours, sometimes they last a few days. But certainly, um, hollow fiber technology has really improved our ability to provide good gas exchange with a low resistance oxygenator. And as a low resistance oxygenator has become available, that has allowed us to move from roller pumps to centrifugal pumps. And there are a variety of good and bad things about both of those types of setups. Certainly the roller pump devices have worked very well for many years, and they certainly are very efficient at helping you remove blood and pushing blood back into the patient. One of the concerns with them has been that because they often rely on gravity drainage from the patient, uh, you have to have a gravity siphon between the patient and the pump itself, which means that you have to have the patient you know, up in bed or whatever, some distance from the pump head itself. And on the positive side, since the roller pump itself generates a lot of forward flow, if there's any occlusion to the arterial side of the circuit, you can very rapidly get uh, tubing rupture and you know, blood all over the room. It's quite dramatic looking. So that it's a little bit harder to transport patients around on that type of device because you have to have more circuitry involved. Um, and there are some safety concerns with it. On the flip side, a centrifugal pump only uh, provides forward flow to what comes to it. So in other words, it's pretty efficient at sucking blood out of the patient, depending on how fast the rotors are spinning, and advancing that blood back to the patient as long as there is uh, forward pressure generated by the circuit that is greater than the systemic pressure in the uh, patient, and they work quite well. The, they do have complications, however. I mean, if air gets into a centrifugal pump, it can quite rapidly be moved into the patient, so you have to be very careful about introduction of air into the circuit. But because the pump will work at whatever level uh, related to the patient, it's much easier to move patients uh, around, and these have become sort of the uh, favored mode of transport ECMO programs, for instance. And uh, because of the fact that you can reduce resistance by making the tubing quite short, you can also make uh, the ECMO circuits that we're using quite short as well, thereby maybe minimizing the amount of heparin you need to use or uh, exposing less blood surface to uh, plastic, which can then uh, influence your inflammatory and your coagulation cascade. The, the, uh, interesting thing about centrifugal pumps is there's a variety that are on the market. And one of the things that is sort of unclear is which one should you buy? They are quite similar in their action, but their prices range uh, from, you know, quite expensive. It's like whether you buy a, a, a Cadillac or a Hyundai, I guess, or a Kia or whatever. Um, you know, and you have to make those type of decisions in your own, uh, in your own program. When it comes to cannulas, 
um, there are now a variety of cannulas which have much better flow characteristics. Um, probably when you and I started, or maybe me, not you, um, uh, we actually used to cut endotracheal tubes or chest tubes, and that's what we used for ECMO cannula, which had horrible flow characteristics. Uh, the things we use now have, you know, very, very thin diameters, and you're able to get much more flow for the same French size of uh, cannula. And probably one of the things that has sort of revolutionized the larger pediatric and adult market is the uh, advent of the one-stage dual lumen cannula for venovenous support. So if you can put in one cannula that has a, uh, either two drainage lumens and then an arterial return lumen, such as the Avalon cannula, which is quite popular in the adult population these days, or other forms of uh, dual lumen venovenous cannulas that only require one surgical site or you can place them percutaneously, that also has provided good support for patients and has made ECMO a lot easier to do, a lot less cumbersome. And at least for surgical site bleeding, especially if they're placed percutaneously, really has helped out with reducing those types uh, of complications. And it's made patients much more amenable to being awake. Along with that, there are now a variety of surface coatings for circuits, which may help us reduce our um, need for heparinization. None of those have proven to date to be really efficient, but we're getting closer, I think, to um, being able to have surface-coated circuits that reduce the inflammatory response and reduce the uh, coagulation response. And there are, there are articles that you read in the literature now where patients are being supported you know, for several days at a time without any need for heparinization. These are mainly larger patients, so you can flow the blood fairly quickly. Um, and uh, those patients seem to be successful. Other stories that probably don't make it in the literature, but you hear about anecdotally, are patients in which heparin is withheld, and oh my God, the circuit clots and the patient clots, and things don't go quite so well. So there's risks on both sides. But from a technological perspective, those are the major things that have sort of, um, I think, changed the field and the way we view things over the last few years. I wonder if I could ask our colleagues around the world, if you have an ECMO program, could you tell us what city and country you're in? And we're interested in knowing um, how you staff uh, the patient on ECMO. Do you use a so-called one provider model or a two provider model? That is, is there one healthcare provider who's responsible for the nursing care of the patient and that person also cares for the ECMO circuit? Or is it a two-provider model where one a provider, typically a nurse, is dedicated to the care of the intensive care patient and another separate provider is dedicated to the ECMO specialist, the care of the circuit? And we look forward to hearing your responses. Dr. Dalton, that's a, a very helpful overview of the state of the art as it exists today. I wonder if we could turn now to uh, some of the more difficult issues that we face on ECMO. Uh, to discuss uh, in brief uh, coagulation practices, uh, but more importantly, decision making um, and the world of uh, the oncologic patient and what's happened in our thinking about ECMO and oncology patients. And then last, how do we know when ECMO has gone on too long? <laughs> uh, but before we, um, we hear from you on those three questions, I wonder if I could turn to our colleagues around the world and ask again if you could identif identify your city and country and if you have an ECMO program how do you measure coagulation function uh, for the patient who's on the ECMO circuit? Do you follow ACTs? Do you follow heparin levels? Are you doing something else? 
But we're back now. Uh, Dr. Dalton, again, um, if, if we could, uh, a few words on coagulation practices. Okay, so anticoagulation. Uh, despite the fact that we have all worked in this uh, area for many, many years and we have much more data and seemingly much more understanding of the coagulation cascade, there's been very little progress made, really, uh, in figuring out what to do. Uh, you know, in the old days we used activated clotting time, a bedside test of clotting. Now many centers are measuring heparin levels with anti-10A. Uh, we're using other factors in the coagulation cascade, such as anti-thrombin. Uh, we're measuring uh, partial thromboplastin times. We still do platelet counts. We're doing thromboelastographs. We're doing all these things. And truthfully, there is no data that shows that any method is better than any other. There was a very recent uh, international survey of anticoagulation practices that was published, which showed um, a couple of things. One, it showed that only 75% of programs actually had a written anticoagulation protocol, which was relatively scary. Uh, and that uh, the variability among centers in what type of anticoagulation monitoring they performed was so vast that there was really no way to make a comment about best practice. 97% uh, of centers still perform ACT testing, usually hourly, despite the fact there are multiple papers that re uh, don't relate ACT to either outcome, bleeding, heparin levels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there has been a tenfold increase in the use of antithrombin. Antithrombin is uh, a, the cofactor that heparin interacts with, accelerates its um, activity in the body, and that causes um, a uh, prevention of uh, thrombin formation. But um, the evidence for that is, is lacking. We don't even know the right dose to use in pediatrics. And it's quite expensive, uh, but we're using it like, like water. Uh, and it's estimated that 52% of the patients, uh, this is a, a U.S. study that's uh, in abstract form now, uh, receive antithrombin for ECMO, which is an off-label use of this particular medication. So anticoagulation remains a muddy box that we're trying to figure out what is the best thing to do with. But then if we could spend a little more time on thinking about the, um, how do you think about the patient with a malignancy and uh, when is ECMO too long? So if you look at um, the recent data compared to the GAO data, you can see that a, both survival and use of ECMO has increased. So that survival back in the GAO paper was 35%. The more recent evaluation finds that about 48% of those patients are now being discharged alive, which is statistically significant. And if you look at the total proportion of patients with cancer reported to the ELSO registry, it's gone from about 0.34% in the GAO area to now about 1% of the patients that are being reported uh, to the ELSO registry who have some type of malignancy. Certainly the group that remains the hardest are patients with bone marrow transplant. Uh, but as my uh, bone marrow transplant colleagues have convinced me, uh, past data on bone marrow transplant, which showed that they all died, uh, is perhaps not applicable to the current day when we have uh, less rigorous regimens for bone marrow transplants. A lot of patients are receiving stem cell transplants, autologous transplants. Uh, their period of uh, being engrafted is shorter, and therefore we should be pushing a little bit harder uh, on those patients. And there is some evidence now that patients, even with stem cell transplants and a variety of other transplants uh, for cancer, uh, who develop some intercurrent illness are successfully being uh, treated and are surviving. So I think we, that's a group we have to rethink. 
in terms of futility, oh my gosh, this is the hardest thing. Because it used to be the equipment would sort of fail after a few weeks and so the decision would sort of be taken out of your hands. If the patient didn't get better, there wasn't anything you could do about it. Now with the fact that we can run these circuits for <laughs> days and days and weeks and weeks and truthfully months and months and months, the futility argument is really hard. Uh, there's a recent abstract I saw recently for an adult patient with single organ failure who was on ECMO for 260 days. 260 days, one circuit change during that period of time. Uh, single lung failure, um, got better, did not get transplanted, lungs recovered, went home. Um, I've run patients for six to eight weeks uh, and had them survive, and I've had patients that you run for six or eight weeks and you become quite bonded to them, especially now you're keeping them awake and they're actually more interactive, and lo and behold, some either complication occurs that you have to withdraw support or you decide to bridge them to a transplant mode. Um, if you look at the ELSO registry, for instance, there are now patients uh, that are reported who have been on ECMO for greater than four weeks. And if you look at their survival, actually their survival isn't that bad. I mean, uh, some 37% uh, of those patients actually survived. And if you look uh, for patients that have been placed for uh, greater than seven weeks, even though they're a small group, it's 64 patients, but that's more than we would have done 10 years ago, their overall survival was 44%. Now, of those patients, 12 of them did get uh, bridged to lung transplant, but certainly I think it indicates that we can go a lot longer, and it makes the decision points for when you withdraw support a very hard decision. Uh, one of the things I'm very careful about counseling families before I put someone on ECMO, though, is um, A, there's no guarantee that this will work. And when the medical staff decides that it's futile, and unfortunately, I don't think there is a good definition for that, uh, we will withdraw support. Um, and I sort of try and take that away from the family's uh, burden of having to say, okay, I think is enough, uh, is enough. Um, you can use things like lung biopsies to do some prognostication for um, recovery of lung function. Sometimes that works, sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not helpful, sometimes it's more bother than it's worth. Uh, but if the patient only has single organ failure and they're mentally awake and that sort of thing, I think the general gestalt these days is we keep going until a, a complication develops or we decide to make the patient a bridge to transplant patient and that moves you in sort of into a different uh, mode, I think, of support. Well, it's terrific, uh, Heidi Dalton. We appreciate um, your comments today and giving us an, an overview of what's happening in ECMO in the world. And that's all for us uh, today. Thank you very much. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.